0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. I just finished his book this morning. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend you read it. I was not very knowledgeable about UFOs. I can't say it's my uh, expertise, but I really felt like this advanced my understanding of the field. The title of the book is The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. And I remember seeing John Mack's videos on YouTube. I found him to be an interesting Mm -hmm. character, and he really is a fascinating person. And uh, the author of the book is Ralph Blumenthal. And he just published this book, February twenty first, twenty twenty one. So I'm delighted to have him. Ralph has written six books. He was a New York Times reporter from nineteen sixty four, serving as a foreign correspondent in West Germany, South Vietnam, and Cambodia. He was the national a national bureau chief in the Southwest and an investigative reporter and arts writer. He was a member of the Metro Desk that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the nineteen ninety two truck bombing of the World Trade Center. So he has something in common with John Mack. In 2017, he and two colleagues broke the story of a secret Pentagon program to track UFOs with videos of encounters between the objects and Navy pilots. He is a recipient of the well-regarded or coveted Guggenheim Fellowship, the author of, like I said, six nonfiction books, and a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College of the City of University of New York. And his books are, the title of those books are The Last Days of the Sicilians at War with the Mafia, published 2012. Miracle at Sing Sing, How One Man Transformed the Lives of America's Most Dangerous Prisoners, 2005. Store Club, America's Most Famous Night Spot from 2000, and then Once Through the Heart, A Police Detective's Triumphant Struggle to Rescue His Daughter from Drugs in 1992. And so I just learned a lot from this book. Uh, John Mack is a very interesting person. So, Mr. Blumenthal, can you talk for people who may not have, You have a lengthy background, but for people who may not have heard your name, can you talk a little bit about how your interest in John Mack developed and led to this book, please?
1: Sure. Uh, Thank you, by the way, for having me on, William. It's a real pleasure. Um, So um, I came to the subject, like you, pretty cold, without a lot of background, and like John Mack himself. He was a Harvard psychiatrist, highly esteemed. Uh, He had uh, won a Pulitzer Prize uh, doing a psychobiography of Lawrence of Arabia, He'd gone to the movies to see, uh, the mo- you know, Lawrence of Arabia, and uh, he came out and said, i got to learn more about this guy, and he spent 12 years investigating Lawrence and uh, writing a biography that won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so he was a pillar of the Harvard establishment, and through a series of steps that I can outline later in more detail, um, he learned about the whole phenomenon of alien abduction, ordinary people who... Um, Encounter UFOs, encounter beings are beamed aboard their ships for for various uh, pseudo medical experiments, other you know strange events, uh, possibly reproductive procedures to produce a hybrid race, you know by their accounts, and um, so he heard about this and he set about investigating it by uh, interviewing these people, studying them with all the tools that a psychiatrist has at his disposal. And he wrote two best-selling books about it, got in trouble with Harvard as a result. Um, And that's – so that's the short version. Now, I got uh, um, uh, – I got involved uh, because I came across uh, one of his books. Uh, I was a correspondent in Texas for The New York Times. And in 2004, I picked up his second book, uh, Passport to the Cosmos, which talked about his research – and I was amazed that a Harvard psychiatrist would be interested in alien, alien abduction. Um, I thought, uh, well, this would make a great story for the Times. I was very naive. I had no idea um, how famous he already was. He had already been in the New York Times. He'd been on Oprah. Uh, he had been, uh, you know, a real celebrity. Uh, but it, it never he never crossed my you know radar screen. So I was going to call him up and uh, see if I could interview him. And then I found out, picked up the paper a few days later, he was dead. Uh, he'd been run over in London, almost uh, 75 years old, looked the wrong way down the street, uh, got run over by a man who had too much to drink. So that's what got me started. Um, so, um, and I spent 16 years on the book because uh, it took a lot of investigation. I had access to all his private journals and his um Uh, audio tapes and uh, you know, all the, all the records he accumulated in the course of his career. So um, uh, it it was a long slog.
0: And it's really, I mean, I think the context of your book, you have so, like you have a broad frame of reference in the book. So I learned a lot Mm. about UFOlogy. Can you talk about Mac and like how he developed because he was part of this very prestigious Mm. academic environment and, He wasn't really that much of, he was not kind of like that conservative in his outlook. He had very different interests, I think, which led him into ufology. But can you talk about how he developed his outlook and also uh, his Lawrence of Arabia book?
1: Yeah, he, uh, what I lay out in The Believer is a series of stages that took him from uh, really a very conventional, although wealthy, upbringing to being this um, uh, real renegade researcher um and it was actually a, a series of things that that got him there it didn't happen uh you know overnight and it, and and it didn't happen suddenly it was really a progression um so he was brought up in a very conventional german jewish household uh his non you know religious um and if non family didn't believe particularly in in any supernatural things um including religion um and uh, he, um, when he went to Harvard uh, to study medicine, um, he uh, he went early into psychiatry because uh, this is a very important part of his story. He lost his mother at at, at eight and a half months old. His mother died of of uh, appendicitis, and penicillin had been invented but not yet in general use, so they couldn't save her. So he was very traumatized by the loss of his mother. His father remarried. Pretty soon, a woman with a, uh, her own sort of tragic story, but it became John Mack's stepmother. But he always felt something missing in his life. So that's the first thing you have to know about him, that he was searching uh, his whole life for something lost, something missing. And he found it. he thought in, in, in the search for intelligent life in the universe, that there was something you know beyond the ordinary. So the series of steps were um, at Harvard. He became very interested in social justice. Uh, he worked to bring uh, mental health care to Cambridge, which was then a, 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 a Cambridge hospital was a downtrodden, uh, you know, part of Boston. He brought mental health services there. He um, uh, he he demonstrated against nuclear weapons. He thought, as a doctor, nuclear weapons were would eventually kill off, you know, humanity if they weren't controlled. So he was arrested in Nevada demonstrating against nuclear weapons with his family, with his wife and three sons. Um, then, as I said, he wrote the book on Lawrence, um, and suddenly that made him an expert in the Middle East. So you'll notice that all these things I've described until now have nothing to do with UFOs, right? Right. So, um, so he went through the Middle East trying to, to bring peace to uh, you know the Arabs and Israelis. He met with Yasser Arafat and uh, –
0: and he kind he
1: kind
0: of
1: mixed with a lot um, of different so, people a lot of different people and he was he was known as a you know as a peacemaker a very interesting character in the middle east but again nothing to do with with alien abduction and nothing to do with ufo's so the the important thing that happened is he went out to california to esalen which is you know that great psychic think think tank on the pacific and all kinds of experiments with drugs which he sometimes participated in um and he got interested in something called holotropic breathing, which was a, a, way, a way of controlling your breathing to uh, bring you into elevated states of consciousness, it's sort of like drugs without drugs. Um, so he practiced this breathing discipline and he found it, he uh, was taken back to his childhood. He felt himself being born in the womb, coming out, his mother turning blue. Uh, he thought he he, uh, he felt he was in a previous life as a Russian peasant in the, you know medieval Russia. His son was being decapitated by the Mongols. Um, and he came out and said, wow, you know, this is amazing. And as he said later, uh, that opened up his psyche and the UFOs flew in. <laughs> uh, it's a great line, right?
0: And it's interesting so, because as a very kind of conventional psychiatrist at this prestigious university, he had kind of a new agey element to his personality that he was kind of a seeker and he was with Werner Erhard asked, and he was yes. really willing to look into those things.
1: He was. And, you know, I should mention, of course, that he was very good looking. He was tall, uh, bright blue eyes, cobalt eyes, uh, kind of a leathery skin, rugged, you know, physique, rugged complexion, Uh it, women and men were drawn to him. He was very charismatic, which helped. And he, uh, he wasn't concerned much about, you know, uh, whether he would lose friends, uh, you know, by pursuing the strange path. Uh, he, had, he had a lot of confidence. Um, so that's something, you know, important to know about him. So at one of these breathing um, sessions, he encountered a fellow psychiatrist who told him stories uh, uh, about a patient of hers uh, who seemed to have been abducted or had an abduction experience. And, um, and, and John Mack had, re- had read a book that somebody gave him at one of these sessions of, about abduction. So he was a little bit prepared, but he was very skeptical. And when this fellow psychiatrist said, you know, I have a friend who's uh, you know, studying this stuff. He's an artist. He hypnotizes people. Uh, would you like to meet him? And John Mack said, hell no. <laughs> it's too crazy for me. Um, so uh, he was you know, not set up for He was still sort of resisting this. But then, as I you know, say in the book, one of those very strange things that happened in life, he found himself in New York. Uh, he decided to give this guy a call. The guy was Bud Hopkins, who is a you know famous name in in ufology and Alien Doctor. He was an artist who got interested because he once spotted a UFO and uh, he decided to investigate. And he wrote a book long before John Mack ever got involved on missing time, on how people who are, you know, uh, who encounter uh, uh, UFOs and and uh, uh, alien beings suddenly find they they've missed a few hours they can't account for, and then under hypnosis. The experience comes back to them that they were taken aboard a ship and they were subject to this and that. I mean, that's the story they tell. So Bud Hopkins knew this stuff. John Mack didn't. John Mack went out to visit him. Um, he was in New York. but Hopkins was in New York. And Bud Hopkins gave him a bunch of letters from people who had stories like this and said, you know, you're the psychiatrist. You look at these letters and see what you think. So the short, you know, version is he looked at the letters and he was blown away as as we all are when we read these accounts. How could this be? This is impossible. Uh, and yet these people, uh, John Mack found, were, were normal in every other way. I mean, he was a psychiatrist, so he knew when people were crazy. Uh, he knew when people were deluded or, or you know making up stories or trying to hoax him, except once he was hoaxed. That's a separate story. But um Basically, he said the the, these stories are too uh, authentic and real to be completely fabricated. Um, So that's what got him started.
0: And uh, I mean, from the beginning, he kind of knew he was in kind of uh, murky waters like he was going to have to. I think he anticipated he was going to have trouble. Maybe what happened to him, not the totality of that. But uh, I mean, I think that from his background too, people thought he questioned his sanity. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I say in the book is at the very end, when they had a memorial service uh, for him, one of his friends stood up in the church and said, uh, John's last words were to me were, tell them I'm not crazy. (laughs) And nobody ever thought he was crazy. I mean, they thought, you know, maybe he he was definitely naive. He was overenthusiastic. He was passionate, as the subtitle of the book says, uh he had flaws i mean he he was not a perfect human being he made mistakes but um he was very rigorous in his research he was always looking for a better explanation i mean that that's interesting to know he didn't just accept these people's stories he kept looking for another explanation and he never found it
0: yeah i mean i think that he he in his in his view was that it's happening he didn't really know why but uh he did kind of explain, like, the phenomenon was real. Like, he had so many different people and stories. I kind of felt like it was, like, the preliminary story of a Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he was traveling around the world interviewing people from different societies, Africa, hmm. things like that. He went to the Dalai Lama, right? So Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he did encounter this uh, everywhere, all over the world and uh so here's the thing that that uh, you know swayed him uh, early on um first of all he saw that the stories came from a wide cross section of humanity not just you know certain people there were housewives and and you know police officers and psychiatrists and professional people blue collar people men women and even children as young as 2 years old and you know when a, when a little kid uh, barely able to talk says little man, you know, take me up into the sky, a little man, fly me in the sky. Now, that kid is not referencing books he's read or movies he's seen. I mean, that's something the kid somehow has come up with. Um, and uh, so that was interesting to, to John Mack that, you know, everyone was basically telling a similar story, but the stories were different enough. So it wasn't like, you know, everybody was reading off one script. Um And there was fragmentary evidence, actually. Uh, People had scars that they couldn't explain uh, afterwards, uh, marks on their body. In one case, case it was a quadriplegic who who was paralyzed. He couldn't move. And he had these scars on his body that he couldn't have inflicted himself. Um, And uh, there was evidence sometimes of a UFO landing outside. The grass was pushed down or trees were clipped. and um, so all these things together, uh, you know, made John Mack think that it, it, the stories sort of hold up. Uh, the only problem is that nobody could prove it, and um, but there was no other explanation.
0: And he kind of befriended and became kind of a part of some of these experiencers' lives, and and, and really was like that uh, picture of Mack with Whitley Strieber and Lawrence Rockefeller was incredible to me. Like, wow. And Rock, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how Rod Lawrence Rockefeller was involved and Whitley Strieber was involved in his life and research?
1: Yeah, uh, well, um, Whitley was one of the first people to publish an account of uh, alien abduction. Actually, his account was so strange that you almost couldn't call it alien abduction. Uh, and that was another aspect of this that's, that struck John Mack, um, that the accounts didn't all – there was things that happened – that didn't fit the conventional narrative. Not everybody was taken aboard a spaceship and, you know, had women had their eggs removed and men contributed sperm and, you know, they were producing a hybrid race. I mean, that's one story, but uh, some people were never put aboard a spaceship. They just encountered strange beings. They encountered reptilian beings. Uh, You know, where did they come from? Giant insects, insects, uh, there were, you know, different races of of alien beings. There were short grays and tall doctor types. And so there were things that, you know, just seemed uh, totally wild. And Whitley's experience was like that. So John Mack was drawn to that. And, um, and hey, Lawrence... Ro- oh, please continue, sir. No, I was going to say that Lawrence Rockefeller was a billionaire. Uh, he was a, a great grandson of John D. And he was known for funding um, anomalous research. He was very courageous in that um, he ventured into areas that other, you know, prominent uh, right. uh, so, I mean- other prom- prominent philanthropists wouldn't wouldn't you know go to. Um, so he became a big supporter of John Mack, uh, Actually, gave him a lot of money for for his, his research. And, um, and one of the pictures I have in my book shows uh, uh, Lawrence Rockefeller and Whitley Strieber together with John Mack at a conference.
0: That's remarkable. And then Whitley Strieber wrote Communion. And there was that element in those stories, the the, story, the experience of stories where it's almost like a religious ex- transformative experience for some of these people. They weren't all terrified. Would you like, talk a little bit about that, about kind of? how these people felt after it happened to him?
1: Yeah. You know, this is interesting because um, John Mack differed from Bud Hopkins and another prominent researcher, David Jacobs, uh, who also, he was a professor at Temple University who uh, looked into first into the UFO phenomenon and later on into alien abduction. And um, Jacobs and Hopkins were much more tied to the idea that these uh, aliens were, first of all, it was happening in, in reality. This really did happen physically to these people, number one. Secondly, it was mostly a traumatic experience because the aliens were trying to take their DNA and create a hybrid race or whatever, but it was a, a terribly traumatic experience. John Mack found that it was traumatic, but they also the, the experiences also emerged uh, transformed. They had more of a feeling for the, for the earth, uh, protecting the earth. They were more, they became more, you know, uh, religious in the sense that they were aware of a deity, some benign power in the universe. Uh, And they often felt transformed by these experiences. They didn't come out only terrified, but they also felt that they had a mission now to, to, to do something for, for the earth, for humanity. So um, uh, and and that was kind of controversial because some people said he, he was sugarcoating the experience and uh, he was he was uh, you know tr- putting his own feelings onto these experiencers, but um, that was a big difference between him and the others.
0: Right, and that was one of the uh, elements of contention was was he supposedly plant- implanting these ideas in the experiencers because he had an interest in it or were these yeah. happening independently? Yeah.
1: That became a big issue in hypnosis in general. Uh, was the hypnotist projecting his or her, uh, you know, uh, ideas on the subject? And there's a lot of misinformation about hypnosis. It's very mysterious and uh, uh, it's not accepted in courts of law, for example, um, because it's, you um, uh it's it's just too unformed, and people don't have a clear idea, but John Mack always felt that people under hypnosis uh were not uh, um, imagining their experience they weren't getting implanted ideas uh these were too central to what had happened to them to be anything but real memories now other some other scientists differed somewhat and they said that no uh you know these these uh experiences could be Suggested to them and implanted, and they didn't actually have them necessarily, but it was the the way the question was asked and the way they were led. So that's an ongoing uh, controversy in, in in psychiatry.
0: Right, and you brought up the McMartin case and some of these other instances where the the patient subject and the doctor with the interests melded, or uh, that. But he, um, so he wrote those two books. He was also interested. I mean, it's not just the Lawrence, but he made interesting decisions. He had, I, your research seemed to have that, all the information that he had from his therapist. He chose to seek psychotherapist. Hmm. I thought that was an interesting element. Yeah, uh,
1: this is really one of the things that I'm proudest of in the book, that I got access to um, his therapy sessions, and not all of them, but some of them. And John Mack was a compulsive uh, saver. Uh, he, he saved all his drafts, and everything he wrote, uh, his journals, where he recorded his most private thoughts. And the family um, gave me access to, to this material. Now, um, uh, among the material were tapes of the, the sessions that he had with this therapist. You know, psychiatrists have to be analyzed more than anybody else, because um, that's one of the requirements in psychiatry. You have to go through a long analysis so even after he was a you know, professional psychiatrist, he still went for analysis and he would talk to his therapist who was a, a Sikh um, and a very but a very um, up to the minute guy, very hip and very cool. I've talked to him for the book, um, Guru Charan uh, Singh Khalsa is his name Um And um, and John didn't hold anything back. He was talking to his therapist. He talked about his love life. He was interested in some other women besides his wife, because he was always searching for, you know, that missing woman in his life ever since his mother died. So he would confide his marital problems. He would confide his frustrations with his research. And it was a real window into his mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, really fascinating stuff. And he also kind of had troubles with the media with Oprah Winfrey with some interviews. can you talk about his difficulties trying to relay his his research to the greater public or the
1: yeah he well he, as i said before he was naive and when he sat for an interview uh, anybody who who knows how the media works and i spent 45 years at the new york times so i know that you have to be careful around journalists and you have to sort of know in advance what you want to what you want to tell them what your story is but he would try to make friends with everybody who came to interview him, and he would say things like, um, "I don't know, should I talk about astrology? Yeah, maybe. No, maybe I won't talk about astrology. Well, you don't do that to a reporter. <laughs> um, you don't mention drugs and then say you're not going to discuss drugs. Um, so, uh, so he was naive, and uh, he was he actually brought some of his experiences onto TV shows with him. He was so. Uh, so bent on, uh, you know, explaining the important story that he was, he had stumbled onto. He was so enthusiastic about it. He wanted to showcase his experiences and they trusted him and they went along with him and they appeared on Oprah and other shows. And as he said, in one, after one show, we got sandbagged because the, the shows, their interest was to extract the maximum emotion and entertainment value out of this. And they would egg on the people and say, what do you mean you're, you know, don't, this can't be true, you know. And it put them on the spot. Uh, TV is not a very good medium for discussing subtleties, in case you, <laughs> in case people <laughs> haven't noticed. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it, so it was kind of a debacle. The Oprah show was pretty good. I'm not saying that she didn't do a very good job. She did. She was skeptical, but she was also open to hearing the experiences, but uh, others weren't as good. And uh, so he did get sandbagged and the experiences were made fun of and they were held up to ridicule and he was held up to ridicule. Um, so so that was a problem. And at one point, as I said earlier, he, he was hoaxed by a woman who came forward and told a fantastic story, supposedly, that had happened to her. She said she was on a spaceship during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet Premier, and uh, President Kennedy were both on the spaceship, and Khrushchev was crying in her lap. And he, John Mack thought that was amazing. <laughs> you know, I mean, after the stories he had heard, that wasn't so crazy. Um But it turned out later that she told Time Magazine she made that all up because she wanted to expose him. She said he was a cult leader and things like that. Well, the truth is, as I outlined in my book, um, John Mack thought she really was an experiencer. And there's reason to believe she really did have these experiences. And she pretended to be a debunker um, for reasons of her own. But uh, it was a sad episode.
0: And I don't think that's uncommon in the UFO Community. I think there's a lot of uh, people with different agendas that may not be telling the true stories, too, for their own personal interests. I don't think that you would be alone. But he also kind of had trouble with his peers like Carl Sagan and some of these other... Um, people in that, in that environment of, like, the cosmos or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about how they received his, yeah. his books and stuff? Um,
1: well, his colleagues um, were, many of them were, were very skeptical. I mean, they came from a very conventional background, Harvard, even though Harvard, you know, was no stranger to unconventional research. I mean, William James, the father of psychology, was, you know, uh, talking about seances at, at Harvard 100 years before Mac. Uh, but in, in more recent years, um, it was certainly controversial to talk about, you know, aliens and UFOs at Harvard, uh, and to give them the kind of credibility that Matt gave him. So he, he had pushback from some of his psychiatric colleagues who thought he was, he was, um, enabling, uh, the people he was seeing. He, he, he should, they thought he should have been more, uh, skeptical and, and not, uh, you know, uh, uh, subscribe to their stories. Uh, but he, as I said, he, he ended up believing that they had encountered something real, even though it, it, it was not necessarily in this reality It was not everyday reality. It was some, some other liminal state that, uh, that these things were happening, but they were happening. He thought to these people, they weren't lying about it. Um, so, so he had, you know, pushback from colleagues, uh, some supported him, um, they thought he was courageous, uh, um, that he was, uh, you know, opening up new new areas of psychiatry. Uh, so it was a mixed bag.
0: Yeah. So some people really saw him as kind of a pioneering groundbreaker. The others thought he was involved in kind of charlatanism or something like that. But, uh, those stories are for differing stories. There's a lot of really true stories mm-hmm. about those UFO experiencers, but, uh, he did have like, uh, he had trouble with with Harvard and involved some well-known figures like, uh, or I know, Daniel Sheehan of the Christic Institute. Can you talk about how that that played out?
1: Yeah, so um, he was always worried. I mean, he made no secret of his research at Harvard. I, actually, uh, before he even knew very much about the uh, abduction phenomenon, he was already talking to uh, audiences at Harvard about it as he was learning, as he was, you know, uh Uh, embarking on his research, which probably was a mistake. Uh, He had been cautioned about not jumping the gun, but he was, that was his, his way. He was, he was quite enthusiastic. So he couldn't wait to tell people what, uh, you know, what he was finding. So, um, and he kept thinking, gee, I got to tell Harvard officially what I'm doing, but he kept putting it off. And finally he decided he's going to talk to the deans of the medical school and tell them about all this research. But they were, ahead of him, and they handed him a letter before he even opened his mouth and said, John, we're investigating you, essentially. Um, now they said it was not an inquisition. So of course, he's being he being a psychiatrist said, well, why would you use a word of something that it isn't? <laughs> so, it, it, so it was an inquisition in his mind. And I, I, I said in the book that there's reason to consider it an inquisition. It was secret, it was designed to bring him down, uh, it was very intrusive. Um, it, it, it questioned his, uh, his beliefs, his, uh, his financial situation. Uh, you know, it, it really probed very intrusively into his life, whether he believed, quote, believed in UFOs, whether they were real, all these other questions. Um, and uh, so he, he was under investigation for a year and a half. Um, but when he first went in there to the committee, he thought it would just be a conversation, you know, with his colleagues, that they would ask him questions and he would respond. He had nothing to hide. And um, uh, his nephew, uh, who was uh, at Harvard Medical School, a, a physician, uh, heard that, you know, John, his uncle, was going into this committee without representation. He said, you've got to be out of your mind. You know, you, you need defense. You you can't just go in like that. You need a lawyer. So he first got a lawyer who was connected to Harvard, which was not a very good idea. Again, it was his naivete. And then he got, as you said, Danny Sheehan from the Christic Institute, a real firebrand, um, um, you know, lawyer who had invest. He represented Karen Silkwood family and her after she died mysteriously, her, her, their lawsuit against the. Uh, plutonium, uh, you know, uh, plant where she worked. Um, He uh, investigated the uh, Iran-Contra arms scandal under the Reagan administration, the Ku Klux Klan. So he was one firebrand that that John got as his uh, lawyer. And the other was Eric uh, McLeish, who had investigated the priest abuse scandal in Boston. he just uh, come off that. And he, um, you know, that was in the Boston Globe uh, movie you know the spotlight right. um, and he was a, he was a real celebrity as well uh, Macleish and there, there were two really hot shot uh, firebrand lawyers and it was just what Mac needed to fend off Harvard because Harvard was very powerful and they had their you know legal team and all of the, the power of Harvard so um but he he put up a very good defense and uh, I th- the, the uh, whole story of the investigation was never revealed except I have the papers in my book because I got them from his archives. Harvard never issued a, a report, uh, you know, laying this all out. It was never officially, you know, disclosed. They just put out a statement at the end saying he was basically exonerated. No, no legal action would be taken. But um, I'm happy to say that I was able to, you know, to get the story from my book. Uh, and as I say, they found that he was a little too enthusiastic. Uh, he admitted that he said, "Yeah, you know, I was I was uh, over emotional, maybe passionate. I should have been more careful." But he didn't do anything wrong. Um, they found no, uh, you know, egregious, uh, you know, missteps. And uh, basically, he went on from there.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting too because people perceived him. At least she did, like perceived him as one of these groundbreaking. Figures of somebody like he put him in the place of Galileo and Darwin, people who were pushing human understanding forward. So at least that's what he wrote in his document <coughs> he did, and also like you mentioned, William James, but also kind of other thinkers, Young, Freud, Conan Doyle. Yeah,
1: yeah he was. Uh, I mean, his lawyers certainly put him right up there, and and John Mack always said that this is really the fourth wave of human understanding. You know, first uh, the early uh, humans thought that the the sun revolved around the earth, and then they found no, it doesn't work that way, you know. And then uh, uh, they thought God just created humans, you know, uh, from uh, from spirit, nothing. And they said, no, it's actually a process of evolution. And then um, uh, people thought that people were masters of their own mind; they they ruled their their uh, in, impulses. And then Freud came along and said, actually, no, you're really a victim of your darker impulses and your, you know, your uh, secret uh, yearnings and all these things that are uh, going on, churning around in rain. And then um, the last frontier, uh, Max said, was, uh, oh, we're alone in the universe. We're the only intelligent life in the universe. And now we're finding, well, that's probably not true. There's billions. Uh, there's billions and billions of planets and that it's probably life of some kind uh, elsewhere in the universe, almost certainly. And given that the universe is 13 billion years old, probably life has had a chance to evolve in some very complex forms in other places. So that's, you know, what he said was the progression and, and people like Danny Sheehan said, well, that puts John Mack up there with Galileo and Darwin and Freud, uh, which is very flattering to him.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's what really what sets him apart is really just this very prestigious, uh, accomplished academic venturing into this really is, uh, I think, important for people because they can get a a well-seasoned, intelligent, experienced psychiatrist to look into. I mean, it gives the whole environment credibility when there's a lot of I mean, I think it's even you even mentioned in the books, like a lot of kooks and uh, myth making and things like that.
1: Well, you know, uh, it's a good point you make, William. Uh, he was uh, just the right man for the job because he was a towering intellect. Uh, if if somebody with, you know, with, with half his ability had, had uh, you know, been in the same spot, I don't think he would have, uh, you know, been able to carry the argument as well. But uh, Mac, for example, he had written a very good book on nightmares. So later on, people came and said, well, these people, they're just suffering a nightmare. He said, listen, I know nightmares. I studied nightmares. He was an expert in nightmares. He was an expert in childhood development. Um, he had written about a book about a teenager who committed suicide. Uh, he had written a book about um, uh, different uh, aberrant states in, in psychiatry, you know, uh, people suffering all kinds of mental disorders. So he had covered that ground to the point where he could say, look, I'm an expert. You know, if you're an art dealer and, uh, or an art, you know, specialist, and someone shows you a, a portrait and says, this is by Rembrandt. Well, you know, whether they're telling the truth or not, you have ways of, of you know, of checking that out. And he said, I'm the same way. Um, he didn't say that in an arrogant way, but he just said, uh, look, I, I, I know when people are lying or they're making stuff up. Uh, And these people are not crazy. So um, uh, he really brought a lot of weight to, to, you know, to to the field.
0: Right. And do you think that his research or uh, his Pulitzer Prize winning book on T. Lawrence, and you mentioned uh, Campbell, also kind of this heroic, uh, uh, you know, the heroic ideals. Do you think how much of that influenced his his research and him as a person?
1: Ah, another good question. Uh, He took Lawrence as his role model, actually. And that was another uh, perhaps flaw in his character. He saw himself in somewhat grandiose terms um, because Lawrence obviously was a nation builder. I mean, he was a fabulous character who, uh, unlike the movie, by the way, he was not a sadist. He was not uh, a a warmonger. He was a very private character. Shy, almost person who who didn't even like to use his own name. He liked to disguise his, you know, his his his, uh, his legend with another name because he didn't want the spotlight. Anyway, um, but he was extremely heroic. Uh, he mobilized, you know, Arab tribesmen in revolt against the Turks, and and John Mack, studying Lawrence, and and John Mac studying Lawrence for. Uh, you know, a, a dozen years the way he did, he saw himself sort of in, in the mold of Lawrence. Um, and, um, and later I say, he didn't say this of himself, but I say that he kind of fulfilled uh, Joseph Campbell's, um, you know, um, uh, steps or guidelines for, for a hero. He, first, he, he, he receives a call to adventure which is, you know, a summons to, to to investigate something, to do something. He tries to evade it and say, this is not true. I don't want this job, like Jonah and the Bible didn't want the mission that God, you know, was sending him on. Uh, yet he finally says, okay, I'll go. And John Mack does his investigation. He has many adventures along the way, life-threatening, you know, hair-raising adventures. Uh, he triumphs, and he comes back with a gift for mankind, which is the wisdom he you know, he accumulated. And um, and that's the definition of a hero that Joseph Campbell set out. And I find that John Mack kind of fulfilled that in his way.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, I think that's a great, great way to end it. We're at 40 minutes. Um, Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? And also, can you talk a little about where people can get the book or your social media if they want to reach out to you?
1: Uh, sure. I have a Web page, uh, Ralph, W.W.W. Ralph Blumenthal, R.A.L.P.H.B.L.U.M.E.N.T.H.A.L. dot com, Ralph dot com, which gives my bio and my other books and tells you, you know, how to order uh, The Believer. Um, it would be great if you could buy it from an independent bookstore because Amazon has enough money. Uh, sure. I'm very grateful to Amazon um, for, you know, pitching the book. But independent bookstores need all the help they can get, uh, and it's possible to get the book at independent bookstores even if they have to order it. <clears throat> Amazon does have it. Barnes & Noble does have it. Sometimes there's a wait. And uh, Kindle has it. So if you're really desperate for the book right this minute, um, you can get it you know, within seconds on your Kindle or on your iPad and read it uh, that way. A lot of people like to do that. And there's going to be an audio book at some point, uh, nice. so you can listen to it.
0: Well, congratulations. It's an excellent read, too. I kind of felt like it was like one of Michael Crichton's best fiction movies, even though this is all nonfiction. It reads really well, so I highly recommend the book. It's superb. Again, the name of the author is Ralph Blumenthal, and the title of the book is The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. February 21st, 2021 was the publication date. Thank you so much, Ralph. Thank
1: you, William. A real
0: pleasure. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Are you still there?